Hello, everybody. Again, this is Ethan Shapiro, the climate change realtor with Coldwell Banker, founder and manager of the most innovative real estate sales company in the world, here for another episode of Changing the Climate. I am very lucky to have my guest, Mr. John Golden Dubois. John has been working in the nonprofit space for nearly three decades and is currently the president of Western Resource Advocates, a nonprofit organization committed to the protection of the land, air, and water in the western part of the United States. John, thank you so much for being with us. Ethan, I'm glad to join you. Yeah, it's, it's truly an honor, truly a pleasure. Uh, I always love to get these things started by just hearing a little bit about who you are and your background, how you got to be where you are today. Sure. Uh, well, I'm a Coloradan through and through. So I grew up here in Colorado in Denver and have spent uh, pretty much all my life here. I've had a couple of opportunities to go and live in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And those experiences and the experiences that I had here in Colorado were really pretty formative in terms of my outlook, the things that are important to me. You know, I spend a lot of time in the outdoors with my family uh, in the backcountry hiking, a lot of skiing. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what drives me and has driven, I think, to, to a great extent, my engagement in the work that I'm doing today around climate change, protection of landscapes and rivers around the West. Very cool. Do you think that your upbringing in the West is what has fostered this really strong connection for you? Or you really think there's something unique about this part of the country? Oh, it's a great question. You know, it's hard to know what's causal and what's what's sure. not. Um, you know, growing up, we spent some time in the mountains, mostly on family ski trips, that kind of thing. But I didn't really spend a lot of time out in the backcountry until my late teens. And that's when I really kind of began to realize the impact that being in nature had on me and that those experiences were were really valuable and that they provided me with those kind of opportunities for, for renewal that just, I hadn't really had before that. And it just, you know, makes you feel whole and makes you feel like there's a larger world around you and you see wildlife and um, have the opportunity to, you know, do river crossings and all that kind of stuff has just been invigorating. So it's shaped me. I don't know, kind of, I think it kind of really started in my teen years. Yeah, I, I think the West is, is a very special area. I do really, I do think about when I'm driving along the road, like how I'm in like the wild, wild West. And it really, it was this isolated part of the world for so long. You know, if you keep going West, you end up in the biggest ocean in on the planet, which is just so large from separating the Eastern world, whatever you want to call it, from the West. And I'm, I'm a Jersey boy, so I was, I'm from the East Coast. And I spent a lot of time in the Adirondacks, which is a lovely area as well. But driving from um, Los Angeles to Boulder. Um, it must have been a year ago or so now and seeing just like the vast desert and how it's just, it's just so different from the other side of the country. And it's just, it is a, a really unique and beautiful part of the world. I think that's absolutely right. I think it is, um, you know, there's a, these incredible landscapes and variety of landscapes that are, you know, just uh, unlike anywhere else in the world. Um, in my, when I was kind of in my early twenties, I had this opportunity to drive across the country with a bunch of folks from, um, both New Zealand and from England. Awesome. And they just couldn't believe how far you could see. Mm. And, you know, that's one of the things that is unique about the West after having lived 
in a couple of cities around the East Coast where, you know, you just, you can't see very far. There's a lot of, there's trees everywhere. There's a lot of foliage. And so you just, you don't get that kind of wide open expanse that you get in the West, whether you're in um, a mountain valley, whether you're on top of, you know, a 13 or a 14 or somewhere in Colorado or the high, the high uh, mountains along the Wasatch Front in Utah. And then of course, just the, the vastness of the desert where you see these, um, you know, you see a thunderstorm coming from 60 miles away, 70 miles away, Amazing. and you can just kind of see it coming at you. I, I think it's, it's unlike other parts of the world from that, um, from the perspective of just kind of what the variety that's out there. And then I think, you know, you also can't talk about the West without thinking about the people that live here, both in rural areas, but also in um, communities around the Western U.S. where there are just, you know, great cities and um, all kinds of opportunity to see the variety of life around the Western U.S. It's, it's truly incredible. So let me ask you this, John, why should we protect these lands? What's the reason? Well, I, I think, you know, Western landscapes are places that people go for renewal. Um, mm. In some cases, us, us city dwellers, they're home to people who live in rural communities around the West. And then in many cases, they hold both cultural and spiritual significance for indigenous people that have been here for um, so much longer than the rest of us who now call ourselves Westerners. And all of that is worth protecting. There are ways of life that have been going on here for, um, you know, thousands of years. When you look to some of the First Nations communities, that's worth protecting. When you look at um, the beauty of some of the areas that exist around the West, whether it's deserts, whether it's mountains, um, they're unlike other places and it's all worth protecting. And I think people come to the table with different values and different um, respect for these different areas, but it also is a place where um, people find their livelihoods. You know, we have a, a, an agricultural industry around the West that's important. We have um, rural communities that have, um, you know, been the drivers of economies in years past and those are all part of the variety that is the West. Yeah, and we also have to keep in mind that this United States is just one of the largest nations in, in the entire world. So why should someone who lives all the way in, say, New York City on the East Coast be concerned with what's going on in the national parks all the way on the other side of the country? Well, I think this is a, it's a great area of the country that people come from all over the world to experience. So not only those folks that are Americans who are coming from the East Coast, but you know, you go into any of our national parks today and they really are wonders. If you look around the West and you look at the variety of the different landscapes, if you just talk about, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park here in our backyard, um, or if you look at some of the desert parks in Utah, where there's canyon lands or arches, you know, people come from around the world to see this because they are so spectacular. And it's um, both worth protecting and I would suggest it's our obligation to protect those places. Definitely. And I, I think, you know, within the context of those parks and other wild lands like wilderness areas or some BLM lands, you know, some of the most spectacular wildlife in the world, you'll see them there. Um, and those are opportunities that 
you know, don't exist everywhere in the world. And it's, it's um, worth our effort to really try to preserve that for us and for future generations. Yeah, thank you. Um, why do you think striking this balance with nature is so important for, um, for a thriving ecosystem? Well, I, I, first off, I'd say I, I don't think we've struck that balance. We have um, beyond a doubt. I would say that um, you know we have often erred on the side of development, and if you look across the western states, a lot of um, lands that deserve protection, where there's great habitat for wildlife, there are both permanent and ephemeral streams that provide. Um, the water that's necessary for wildlife to survive and to thrive um, are a threat from development, both from kind of suburban sprawl types of development, but also from oil and gas development, which is the largest driver of land loss in uh, Colorado and some of the other states around the West too. Certainly. So I, I don't think we've, we've found that balance. And I think what the, what the science is showing us is that in order to preserve the vast majority of species on the earth, we have to do a much better job of protecting larger areas of land. And so part of the, the challenge when it comes to land conservation and oceans conservation for that matter, is figuring out how we can protect and connect 50% of the landscapes uh, here in the West and, and around the world in order to protect the vast majority of of biodiversity that exists on the planet. And I don't think people realize like how important that truly is. And like, I know I think Greta Thunberg was popularized for saying we're in the, the, the beginning of this mass extinction. And it's, it's so true. Like I, I've said this on the show several times, I've seen the Great Barrier Reef completely bleached white with my own eyes. And it is this this ecosystem. Now I'm no scientist and I do this show because I want to learn from people who are smarter than me, but we're all connected. We all, you know, we eat the animals that eat the grass, that the grass, you know, whatever. I'm not you know, circle of life type stuff, but um, biodiversity is so important. I think one of the, the main things and what I love about what your organization is doing is protecting the lands and making sure that people don't develop on these lands will ensure that these ecosystems can continue to thrive. And then we can work in sync with them and continue living our life the way we want to, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we, from my perspective, are at an unprecedented moment in Beyond human history. It is, you know, it's difficult to focus on that challenge and to put it in a proper context right now because we're impacted and in a lot of cases distracted from what seems like a partisan political unraveling of, of the U.S. and of our democracy. So it's kind of hard to escape, hard to escape that reality and to think about um, what, what we're seeing before our own eyes this, over the course of this summer. You know, if you look at the past few weeks in particular, we've more clearly than ever uh, seen and have had demonstrated that we're on this path to a dystopian future that's fueled by climate change if we don't do something different. Beyond and so the world looks a whole lot like what scientists have been predicting for four decades we have wildfires that have ravaged communities and led to not only substantial loss of property, but loss of life on the West Coast. We have multi-year drought here in Colorado and around the states of the Colorado Plateau. We have flooding in states in the Midwest um, that's been just devastating for farmers and rural communities. 
temperature records like every year across the globe, air quality, which is literally the worst that's ever been recorded um, in communities. And it's literally toxic. Seas are rising. We have more named storms this year than at any than in any previous hurricane season. So, you know, these are these are challenges that we've got to take a different approach to. We got to step up to the plate and really take the decisions that would address them. How do you recommend people find the strength to get past all the partisan bullshit and past all the surmountable challenges and really think critically and find a solution? What would you recommend to the average citizen? What can they do? Well, I think there's a lot that people can do. I I think we haven't done enough to ensure that our political leaders have the law. I'm sorry, have the will to address these sets of issues. Mm -hmm. It's really clear what trajectory we are on. And so what we need is we need people to really engage on these issues with people that they elect as their leaders. And I think that's true in local communities. That's true at the state level. And it's certainly true of national leadership um, because we we do know and we understand what the impacts are and in many cases we also really know what the set of solutions are so it is time to as as citizens in this democracy it is time to um, really get out there and begin to ensure that our voices are heard and I think that's one of the things that um, gives me a lot of hope because so many young people are doing that. They're not accepting um, what is um, this potential dystopian future. And they're, they're out there in the streets and they're protesting, they're contacting their um, leaders in their communities and in Congress. And I think that's what needs to happen in order to create the political will to address the challenge. And we should thank them for that and, and give them support. Cause you know, it all, as, as we talked uh, a couple weeks ago, all it takes is if you can do one hour a week, like that's enough. And it, it seems uh, strange when you're, you're in your life and you're just doing your thing. You're like, I don't want to d- dedicate one hour to something. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. But I've, at least I've personally found that when you start prioritizing what you know is right and you just, you just, just, just start with one week, just do it and then see how you feel and then move forward from there and then just keep adding and adding, adding and looking back, be like, oh, I'm looking forward to that one hour, whether it be sending emails or making calls or, or just connecting with people. And I'm happy for anyone who wants to reach out to me to kind of help them kind of figure out what, what their place could be in this. Cause it's, it's up to you to decide. There's so many different things. There's so many moving parts. Um, do you want to discuss governor Paulus's climate roadmap plan? I, I believe he released that in, in, was it in 2019? I know your organization had had commented on it, I believe. So, um, yeah, so what happened is in uh, 2019, uh, Western Resource Advocates, along, along with a variety of partners in the conservation community, um, worked with state leaders in the legislature to uh, drive and pass um, House Bill 1261, which was a piece of legislation which established climate goals for the state of Colorado and would ensure that the state is on path to reduce climate pollution consistent with what the world's leading scientists are telling us we need to do. So what the bill essentially did is it set goals for 2025 to reduce emissions by 26%, by 2030 to reduce carbon pollution by 50%, and by uh, 2050 to reduce carbon pollution by 80%. Um, That led to the creation of what the governor has called his roadmap on climate. 
and that uh, essentially has been used as a what they've described as kind of a guiding document on the sets of actions that the state can take to address climate change. Beautiful. And I know you had just had an article in the Colorado Sun. Was, was it written by you? Am I correct? Or were you just featured in it? It was me and two partners. So I was joined by the executive director of Conservation Colorado, Kelly Nardini, and also by the director of the Colorado region of the Nature Conservancy, Carlos Fernandez. Amazing. Can you tell our listeners what your vision is for the future of Colorado? Yeah, I think, um, you know, our vision really is focused on creating sustainable and livable communities well into the future. And it really calls for um, new investments in the sets of um, policies and steps that we need to take in order to ensure that not only Colorado, but the Western U.S. remains the greatest place to live in the world. What that really means oh, yeah. is as we think about how we rebuild our economy in this COVID world and post-COVID is we should be investing in what we know are the growth areas for the future rather than investing in, you know, in the past or some oh. kind of lost sense of what we were we can invest in new areas that build a stronger economy for the future. So that means investing in clean energy. It means investing in transportation electrification. It means investing in housing in areas where it's needed because we've gotten to a point where uh, it's just unaffordable to live in some of our urban centers. It means cleaning up the air in inner city communities where um, people that are uh, low income, people that have been living in these inner cities for years, whether that's black, brown, indigenous, people of color, um, have been suffering from high levels of pollution and are suffering from these sets of issues that are associated with climate change. We need to address those issues first and really make people's lives better. Do you think it's the responsibility of those who are, are more privileged to fix these issues? Or do you think everyone kind of, do we want to burden those who have a less economically um, ideal situation to, to help us out? It seems like we could use as much help as we could possibly get. I'm, I'm just not sure. It's hard to ask someone like me who has their own business and can write their own schedule and versus someone who has three children and is, is 22 years old and is having to work 70 hours a week, you know, we, we need all the help we can get. What would you be your recommendation as far as that goes? Well, everyone is part of the solution set that we need to advance. But what I would say is, you know, we, we know a lot more than we previously knew about the impacts of pollution and the impacts of climate change on um, black, brown, indigenous, and people of color. And what we know is that the burden of and impacts of these pollution of pollution has largely impacted them much more than others. We know that the impacts of climate change and of pollution do discriminate. And we know wow. that the people that are the most impacted are those that have the least, the poor, those are living in less developed nations, First Nations, Indigenous people, Black people, people of color, right here in our own communities. They can't pick up and move to higher ground. They can't just turn up the air conditioning. They don't have an escape plan from wildfire and from rising seas. And it is our obligation to right that 
injustice. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. I, I think that's so, that's so true. Can you talk about kind of your, your journey? Cause I always love, I'm, I'm obsessed with like entrepreneurship. Can you talk about your journey of how you started Western resource advocates to where we are today, the current successes and the different projects that you've worked on over the years and what we want to do moving forward. So my journey's kind of been a winding road. Um, I'm happy to hear it. And my career starts around the time, in fact, in the same year that Western Resource Advocates was formed, even though I was played no role in the creation <laughs> of the organization. Okay. So in 1989, Western Resource Advocates was founded by um, two people, a woman named Kelly Green, who believed that the environment needed a lawyer. And um, <laughs> so true. By Everyone David needs Getches, one. And by David Getches, who was the first board chair, and they had the vision to really think through and look at what problems were being faced and to think through how they could use legal skills to protect the wider environment around the Western US. My own career started around the same time when I was, um, I just graduated college a couple years earlier and I was in, I'd moved to New York City to work and I was out there working and that was the year um, of the Exxon Valdez oil spill in oh, Prince William Sound in Alaska. And I was, I had never been to Alaska, but I was so frustrated by um, what seemed like wanton disregard for um, the natural world and for the wildlife that lived there and, um, and the resulting pollution and catastrophe that came from the oil spill that I, I quit my job. I moved to Colorado I tore off one of those, uh, you know, you, you've probably seen these posters around that say jobs for the environment. I tore <laughs> off one of those, um, one of those phone numbers. I made the call. Awesome. I got a job canvassing and activating people around conservation issues. Was it door to door? It was door to door. Um, Classic. Doors, raising resources, <laughs> activating people. And, you know, that's kind of where I began to learn about conservation issues. And then I, um, began working with students on college campuses and working with them to plan strategies for effective at, uh, advocacy. I began doing work on policy over time and environmental and conservation policy. And then I spent, um, it's, it's a bit of a windy road because I spent 10 years working with Common Cause on government reform and democracy issues, both here in Colorado and then ultimately in Washington, DC. And um, when I'd, when I'd spent 10 years there, I, I came back to Colorado and um, a friend of mine called me up and, and let me know that the president's job at Western Resource Advocates was, was coming open and I was keenly interested to get more involved and engaged in not just conservation issues, but to spend my time in this kind of latter part of my career working on climate change. And I knew of the great work that Western Resource Advocates had done and jumped at the opportunity. And I've now been here for uh, almost seven years. Awesome. Do, do you have any particularly fond memories of like, you worked at something for several years and you're like, ah, we did it. Like we finally, or we stopped, whether it was stopping something or achieving something great with, with the organization. Yeah, I mean, the last few years, there's just been a lot of accomplishment. Um, so great to hear, we uh, need you. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I think in the, in terms of our work around climate and clean energy, you know, the last five years in particular have been uh, 
very there's been some very positive results in the power sector so in the electricity sector where um, a number of different coal plants have it's been announced that they're going to retire i think some of the leading utilities like excel um, whom we work quite closely with um, have made major announcements on uh, retirements of coal and strong movements to clean energy so that's been really rewarding to be able to lock in commitments of near were you communicating with them consistently over the years trying to influence them to make a decision like this yeah so we work quite closely with them and, and have partnered with excel energy for a number of years to try to align policy that really incentivizes them to close coal plants reduce carbon emissions invest in clean energy and build a, a modernized grid and so that that partnership um bore a lot of fruit in uh, 2017 and in 2018 when they um, announced their Colorado Energy Plan, which is a plan that closes down coal-fired power plants. And then at the end of 2018, um, I was very proud to stand up with the uh, CEO of Excel Energy here in Denver when they announced that it was their intention to reduce emissions by 80% by 2030. So well ahead Great. of what the science requires and then to be carbon neutral by 2050. What was um, her name, the CEO? Uh, so the cur there's that was with Ben Folk, who's the CEO of Excel Energy, which works across seven states. And, and right now we're doing a lot of work with Alice Jackson, who's the, uh, who's the CEO for public service company Colorado. So it's the Excel Energy division here okay. in Colorado. And so we, we work quite closely with them and have had, I think that's, you know, really generated um, some amazing results um, on the climate front. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the climate fix and what your kind of organization's recommendations are to addressing this issue? Sure. So the climate fix is our plan that seeks to cut carbon emissions, particularly within the utility sector consistent with the science um, so that we're getting at least a 50% reduction from the major utilities uh, by 2030 and at least uh, a 90% reduction from the major utilities by 2050. Great. And so that is a seven year plan that would cut carbon emissions by 50% from 2005 levels uh, by 2030 and really leads to um, a clean energy transformation. And at its at its simplest, what the plan does is it retires coal. It replaces much of that coal with renewable energy. I can't believe we still have coal. solar. What's that? I just, I can't believe we still even burn coal. I didn't even know that that was happening. It's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it's fortunately we're on a path to um, dramatically reduce how much coal we burn and emissions from coal and hopefully very quickly completely phase it out. Um, as it is, um, you know, one of the primary contributors to uh, climate change and global, global climate change. So, you know, by, but by retiring that coal and replacing it with renewables and modernizing the grid to bring on things like new battery storage, we've found that we can really make a, a tremendous change across um, our region here in the West. So when you say consistent with the science, aren't there like dozens of different models? I don't like, it's amazing to say cut it by 50% or cut it by 30% by this amount. But 
I know any, anything's, better, anything's better than what we're doing now, right? But how do we know when we've, we've gone far enough? Is there any sort of indicator that's like, if we do this by this date, we should be at least 95% chance that we'll be good? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, the unfortunate reality is that some warming is already baked in. Um, right. What the world's leading scientists have come to consensus on Mm -hmm. is that in order to prevent really catastrophic impacts of climate change, we need to ensure that we reduce warming to around 1.5 degrees Celsius. So for four-ish to five degrees Fahrenheit. What that means um, they have projected is at least a 50% cut in emissions, uh, in climate warming emissions by 2030 and at least an 80%, but more likely a 90 plus percent cut in emissions by 2050. So what that means essentially is- Big change. We really need to get big changes and we need to get off of fossil fuels. Um, that's the, the reality Today. of this situation and we need to do it quickly. Yeah, what do you say to those that say it's too late, we're, we're screwed? I don't think that's true. Um, I think certainly we have already baked in some warming mm -hmm. and that as a result of that warming that we know is already happening, we're seeing a lot of the results. So we're already seeing wildfires, we're seeing sea level rise, we're seeing uh, drought, we're seeing flooding, all those sets of things. And some of that will be a reality in our future. So the question is, can we reduce emissions quickly enough so that we don't get to the really catastrophic effects, sea level rise that's beyond, you know, um, centimeters and we're looking at feet of sea level rise. We need to avoid yeah. those, those major changes. Unquestionably, we will have to adapt to um, a different reality because of climate change. And the question really is, how quickly can we act to limit that damage? That would be great. So I'm, I'm very intrigued as this, this show goes on and obviously as my life goes on of the, I don't know if it's the distinction or the difference between a bottom up approach to climate change versus a top down approach. So the week, a couple of weeks ago, I had a representative from the citizens climate lobby who's working on a bill in Congress to address this problem. And I have various organizations that are about grassroots movements and different things. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. I know we need both, but I'm just curious you as someone working within a nonprofit, what you think about a top down versus bottom up approach. We definitely need both. Um, yeah. The reality here is we need to do everything we can to reduce emissions as quickly as we possibly can. And there are a lot of great organizations and individuals that are working in this field on all ends of this. So we definitely need grassroots pressure on decision makers um, in order to help them have the will to take real action that's gonna dramatically reduce carbon emissions. But we also need really good and well-crafted policy that addresses um, that addresses climate change. Let me give you a an example of one of or one or two of the most successful policies that I think can be replicated in other sectors. So, in the renewable energy sector, there was a tremendous amount of resistance in the early 2000s to policies that would establish renewable energy standards around the Western U.S. and around the country. 
those standards essentially said, hey, you've got to generate a percentage of the energy you create, the electricity you create from clean energy, from wind and from solar. And a lot of the utilities really pushed back against that. Um, and in fact, spent millions of dollars fighting efforts to establish renewable energy standards. But for, for profit reasons? Yeah, because they believed that their business model was tied to generating energy from fossil fuels primarily. Yeah. And what the policies did is they just created a window of opportunity for real substantial investment in new renewable energy technologies. And what, what happened was those technologies were quite expensive around 2003, 2004, when these laws were being passed. But because the utilities had to um, buy these resources and invest in them, what happened was there was just a revolution in the renewable energy industry and it dramatically drove down the cost of wind energy and of solar energy to the point where today they're competitive on a cost basis with fossil fuels. In fact, in many cases, they're the least cost option. Clean energy, clean wind, clean solar. So that's been um, a policy that has really um, driven investment in the technology, improved the efficiency of the technologies, drove down the price of the technologies to position them today where those technologies are cheaper than coal. So that's the kind of policy that really can change systems over a relatively quick period of time. So, you know, that that revolution here in Colorado began in 2004 with passage of a ballot amendment. So over the course of 16 years, you've taken a utility that relied on about 78% coal, and today they're dramatically um, increasing investments in renewable energy, retiring coal, and essentially creating a clean energy grid. Yeah, and it, it takes time, and unfortunately, that's not what we don't have. So we really need to work hard. What do you think the role of not legislators, so not not governments and not individuals, people? What do you think the role of corporations is in this transition to a renewable energy society? I think there's an important role. I think um, you know it is important, as you mentioned, to have grassroots pressure on officials and on decision makers. It is important to create policy opportunities that can drive markets and create um, new opportunities for businesses. And it is important for businesses to step up the table and begin to focus on how they can make a transition. Um, The reality is, is it takes all of those things. I think, you know, Excel was initially resistant to the renewable energy standard here in Colorado. um, But I think over time, Um, really saw the light and saw an opportunity to create a business that's more sustainable, that's more profitable, that is better for consumers and better for the environment. I think that's true in uh, most industries. And I think that's an approach that we should seek to replicate. So obviously your organization is called Western Resource Advocates and most of your work has been on conserving natural lands and it's, it's such an important part in this puzzle is, is not taking over the natural world, but learning how to live in, in sync with it. So how do you think uh, moving forward, we can, you know, we have lots of national parks, but it seems like we need just certain areas to be not populated by people and others to, to be so, because 
I, as weird as it sounds, if people don't realize, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, suburban living is significantly more detrimental to the environment than, than urban living. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there are a lot of strategies to grow smartly. Um, and that's the kind of strategies that we need to begin to embrace in our communities around the West and around the world. So we know that by creating urban areas that are planned better and that include more density, we use less energy per capita. We also know that by doing the same thing, we don't chew up and develop land that's currently not developed. And if what we're saying we know based on the science is we got to protect and connect 50% of, of landscapes here in the West, oceans, and around the world, then we need to take a different approach to what growth and development look like. Mm-hmm. Um, we simply can't continue to do what we've done, which is either field through, worth of trees cut down. Exactly. Exactly. Whether it's through kind of suburban growth. Um, or whether it's through oil and gas development that is chewing up more and more land every moment. We just, we simply can't afford to do that. If we, if that's the choice we make, then we'll be saying that we don't value the diversity of species on earth and that it's fine to lose a bunch of those species. So really um, it is a statement about, about us and about what it is that we want to do and what we see our future and our children's future like and to make some decisions about how we're going to grow in ways that are more responsible and that address some of these sets of issues that make our quality of life much better. You know, if we didn't have places to go to nature, if we didn't have opportunities to go to open spaces, if we didn't have, um, if we weren't able to clean up our air, if we weren't able to address these sets of issues, ultimately it means a poor quality of life for all of us. So these are, um, there are solutions to these issues and we need to advance them. I think that's so true. And if you're someone who you're like, oh, I live in a city. I don't, I don't need to be out in nature. I'm a, I'm a city girl. I'm a city boy. Um, especially nowadays when we're so distracted by technology and even more so during this, this Corona stage where we're all kind of doing this Zoom stuff. If you just go outside and go for a walk or go in the forest, I mean, I guess some people won't get this, this connection, but it just, it's just to me, I suppose. It's just, you it feels natural it feels right it feels refreshed and just the more it just seems like wow we're we're destroying this in order to make like cubicles i don't know it just doesn't seem right to me so to uh to kind of finish up here um i'm curious you obviously think we have a, a unique position as westerners in the u.s in this fight against climate change what what is what is the role of us living in the western part of the u.s in in this fight well, I, I think um, I, I want to address that, but I want to come back to your last point for a second, sure. because I think the access to outdoor and open spaces in nature um, is um, fundamental. For mental and, health. Absolutely. And as is um, access to clean air and clean water. Those are the physical health questions. And I think what's happened historically is that we've put um, a lot of, we put a premium on some of those opportunities. And for those who have more, it's been easy to have access to the outdoors, access to nature, access to open space, clean air, clean water. And what we know is 
the way that we have used those resources is it's been unjust and we haven't provided those same opportunities to people in communities um, around this region and in, in other areas of the world. We have instead um, allowed and advanced systems that perpetrate injustice on people in our inner cities who have less access to clean air, less access to clean water, less access to the outdoors and to nature. And it's time we rectify that as we seek these solutions around climate, around protection of, of Western lands and landscapes, providing clean air, clean water, and ensuring that we all have um, access to these places that, are, that we should all have access to. Do you think it's hard to, I mean, climate change is already such a, a tough challenge, isn't it? Isn't it like it could be, uh, I do have this conflict. There's, there's a lot of social unrest going on right now and the world is not an equitable place. There's no question about it. And we'd all love to see it be better. But I do worry about bringing like social equality and justice and tax policy and redistribution of wealth into this when, when, when climate change already has like 12 different levels. So I, that does like concern me. Well, many of these issues are interrelated, and I Beyond think a doubt. it's a question of how do we approach and craft the policies that ensure um, not only that we get to our goals around reducing carbon emissions, but how do we do this in a way that um, rejects the unjust ways we have pursued these sets of strategies in the past, because what we know is a lot of the sets of solutions are complementary. So if we mm -hmm. reduce pollution in inner cities from cars, we're addressing air quality in urban environments, and we are also reducing carbon emissions. And so there are a variety of ways to approach this. If we think smarter, we get the right partners at the table, um, and we think through these issues and we come up with solutions that are, that are better for everybody and that do attempt to adjust injustices of the past. Yeah. So I'm obviously kind of testing my, my hypothesis here by going door to door six days a week and saying, hey, I'm the climate change realtor, like sell your house with me, like I donate money. And uh, the reception's been quite positive. And that's just kind of how I want to wrap up here is that is the West, it seems to be a, a unique place. I mean, I know Boulder is a very unique spot in general, but do you think us as Westerners in the, the this part of the country have this big role to play in, in this climate crisis? Because I don't know, I'm, I'm from New Jersey where people kind of uh, they're a little down all the time. They like doing things the way they do, where I always view, view the Western part of the U.S., like I said in the beginning of this podcast, as like the wild, wild West where you have an idea and you can just go and just do it. I don't know, just your thoughts on that. I think we have a unique role to play in solving some of these issues. And let me tell you why I think that is. Um, one, we have um, fantastic renewable energy resources. Mm -hmm. So I kind of think of the West as the nation's renewable energy breadbasket. We awesome. have great um, solar energy resources um, particularly in the southwestern United States. We have great wind resources um, in, you know, from North Dakota on down into Texas. So incor incorporating much of that wind energy from these regions. We have good geothermal resources in Nevada. And so there are real opportunities to take advantage of those resources and to show um, that we really can create a clean energy 
economy and that can be powered by wind and by solar and by geothermal and by battery resources. So I think that's one, one step. Two, um, we're a region of the country that was very heavily dependent on coal, um, much more so than other regions of the country. And we're showing now that you can dramatically um, reduce carbon emissions by accelerating the retirement of coal plants. So I think there's a real opportunity there. And both of those things, I think, present an opportunity to create a model that shows that this can be done, not just here in this part of the country, but in other parts of the country and in other parts of the world. I think we have similarly a big responsibility and a big role to play because of the value of nature and the outdoors that exists mm -hmm. here. You know, people really do come here from all over the world to see Rocky Mountain National Park, to go to arches, to raft our rivers here in the West, to see the Grand Canyon. You know, we have some of the most spectacular landscapes in the world. Those are worth protecting and worth ensuring that we're taking steps to protect and connect 50% of Western landscapes so that we also can live in harmony with the species that coexist here with us. So I think there are real opportunities to drive these conversations. And then, and then finally, I'll, I'll put in just a little bit of a, a conversation about the Colorado River. Mm -hmm. You know, this river, which uh, whose headwaters are just a few miles west of where I'm standing right now, provides water to 40 million Americans across the wow. western United States. It is the source of a vibrant agricultural community. It is habitat for fish and for wildlife around the West. It is um, key in the recreation economy. And so these are all things that are worth protecting. I think Westerners, whether they're in urban environments, whether they're in rural environments, have shown that they care about wildlife, have shown that they care about rivers, they care about air quality, they care about water quality, and they want to see these places protected. I think that can be a real model for how other communities should be approaching these sets of um, natural and resource issues. Thank you, John. That that was amazing. I, I think you're so right. And I and I uh, for when the first time I visited Los Angeles, I said I could like feel the creative energy in the air. And I, I do think it's so true that, you know, all these, a lot of these startup companies come to the Western part of the U.S. And then I think Boulder is a big hub for entrepreneurial activity as well. And that's just one of the reasons why I love being here is, is this idea that we can test new things and kind of show the world that, hey, there's better ways to do things. And um, we're, we're happy to test it out and see if it works. So um, I think that's totally right, Ethan. I think, you know, people are going to come here because it's a fantastic place to live. And I think Westerners have a real ingenuity and, uh, and desire to solve problems. And I think that can create a path for others. That, that gives me hope. And it also gives me tremendous hope that so many young people are engaging in this and they're not taking no or inaction on climate as an acceptable answer. And, and they're right to do so. And I'm, I'm so glad to see it and look forward to working in partnership with those young people to get this done. Yeah, well, you have today, and I thank you for that greatly. And yeah, well, what I could say is, you know, that we can always learn, or other people can always learn from our failures too. You know, it's not going to be a perfect. It's always a what did you call it? Like a, a slippery journey to to where you're going to be. Um, 
So yeah, John, it, it was really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for t- t- taking some time out. Uh, it, it's much appreciated. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Ethan, I really enjoyed talking with you today. It was an absolute pleasure. Everybody have a fantastic day. Take care.